This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Pretty significant day in the last 24 hours. So we've got doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine that have officially arrived in Canada. So what happens next? Well, joining us now for more on that is David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Yeah, political correspondent turning into the vaccine expert. Yeah. We're all becoming <laughs> science experts these days. It's exciting. It's you know, it's V Day. Is uh, the, the, here in Ontario? It's it's Rick Hillier, the former general, who's running the whole distribution show, and he's calling it V Day. And hey, I guess it is Vaccine Day. It's it's today. It's, uh, it looks like it's going to be. Um, I think it's going to be a senior citizen living in a long term care facility in Montreal will be our first recipient. Um, we don't know exactly who that individual is, but that's what we've been told. And that will be likely this afternoon. So Quebec, it looks like, will be first off the mark. And then V-Day in B.C. or anywhere else probably starts getting going uh, tomorrow. But the shipments are here, and uh, they're being uh, thawed out because they have to be they're shipped at super, super cold temperatures. you got to thaw them, decant them, mix them, and then they're ready for your arm. So, David, but you gave a great indication of what this is like, though. This does seem like a huge military operation, the likes of which oh, Canada yeah. hasn't really seen before. No, and think about, I mean, the, just the logistics alone. These things are made in Belgium. That's where the factory is that makes this stuff. The UPS picks them up. UPS is the courier that's got the job here. UPS picks it up. Uh, from Belgium to Germany, big UPS depot there, they get sorted out. Then it's on a plane from Germany to Kentucky, where there's a gigantic UPS depot. And in Kentucky, that's where Canada's shipments are parceled out. And then from Kentucky, they're flown into Canada. There's 14 uh, sort of point of use depots across the country, at least one for every province. And again, that's where they get uh, they get sorted out. And um, this, this you probably heard, Cindy, this particular vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, it's really not the kind of vaccine where, you know, the doctor puts some vials in his pocket and he heads off to do his rounds. You really have to bring people to a facility because it's got this super chilled uh, aspect to it. Nobody wants to waste right. it. So people will be coming to central facilities. It's going to be a while before we get another vaccine that is more mobile, that we can send into rural and remote uh, areas of, uh, of the province. Okay, and we know, David, that here in BC, at least, they're being kind of tight-lipped about where the vaccine is going to be available because they're, they want to make sure it's all, you know, as safe as possible. Is it like that in other provinces, too, or do you already know, say, in Ontario, where people are going to go to get these shots? Yeah, every province is, I've been watching this, and every province is taking a slightly different uh, take on this. There are some security issues. I mean, you know, this, there are, you know, dumb people out there in the world who will want to cause some trouble, think they can, you know, maybe steal some vaccines and and uh, make some money. Um, here in Ontario, we do know that there's a, there's a hospital in downtown Toronto that is going to be the first site tomorrow at nine for the first vaccine. And here in Ottawa, there's a hospital as well. But for, if, uh, and in, I know in Regina, there's two hospitals there that will start their program in Saskatchewan. So everybody's a little bit different. But uh, people are, you know, concerned about 
the security of uh, the situation. Uh, everybody, I mentioned Quebec is going to do a senior citizen first. Most other provinces are going to do healthcare workers first and do people who are either working in the ICU units and hospitals or in uh, in the COVID-19 wards, or they'll do healthcare workers who are going into long-term care homes. And again, the issue there is it's if you're in a long-term care home, the odds are, are pretty good you're not very mobile, and it's hard for people to move patients out to these facilities. As I say, Quebec right. is the only one. They're in a special facilities there, but everybody else do will be doing healthcare workers. Okay, and yesterday, we, I know we also heard from one of the federal ministers about uh, what other vaccines that they are also trying to procure at this point? Yes. So yes, and, and Canada has uh, you know has basically lined up to buy seven different vaccines. The Pfizer is one of them. The next one out of the gate is likely to be the Moderna vaccine. It's a two-dose vaccine like the Pfizer. It's built on much the same technology that the Pfizer one is, but it's the one that's a little more mobile. You don't mobile. You don't need the deep chill. Uh, so as of Friday, Health Canada was saying they're just trying to get a little more information about the manufacturing process. They want to be uh, sure it's safe and Canada's batches are good, and that they may see that uh, sooner than you know sooner than uh, anticipated. Again, possibly by the end of this year. And again, that's so important because that the Moderna one will be the one that does go in the doctor's sort of bag, and doctor can get on the airplane and head to Northern BC or right. you know out on Van- Vancouver Island, wherever it may be. That's the one. That is really going to start, to, uh, you know, started getting lots of popula- parts of the population uh, dosed up. All right, David, thank you so much. Thanks. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. So we've got a couple of giveaways that are going on on the show today and tomorrow. You, uh, if you listen on Friday, you know that Karen McSherry from Gourmet Warehouse was on and she brought with her a stack of great cookbooks to give away. But we're doing it by having you email us your favorite holiday recipe. The, the thing that everybody tells you you must make for them at this time of year. And our Nikki Reitmeyer joins us now to help us go through some of these. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. It's way too early in the morning for you to be making me this hungry. I don't know if I can handle this next segment, listening to all these fantastic recipes and just developing a craving for, I don't know, the heaviest Christmas food possible at 6.20 in the morning. This happened to me on the weekend because I was sorting through the recipes and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of good biscotti recipes here. I think I'll make some biscotti. And, you know, and then same thing. So there's so much uh, baked goods right now at my house. And I blame the listeners for that because I was also yeah. reading through all these. So we've got some great ones. And my favorite ones, Nikki, are the ones where people sent a story along with it, right? Mm. Yeah, that's because that really is a big connection to food, isn't it? The, it is. the story that goes along with it. You know, a recipe is, it's a recipe. I mean, it's, you know, whatever, it's a dish, it's words on paper, but it's the, the family connection. When yes. you think about that recipe and you go, oh, I remember that grandma used to make that dish and all the kids would come over and my neighborhood friends would always be asking me for, for my leftovers because they yes. loved it so much. It's those stories that make those dishes into something special, those memories that make it so special. So true. So we're going to go through some of the ones that we, that really caught our eye in all the one. And there's some savory and there's some sweet. We'll start with the sweet. So Vince, uh, Vince Sicaro emailed us and Vince said, this is a recipe from an old neighborhood friend's girlfriend from high school. <laughs> Hold on, said, let me pull that connection again. It was a friend's old, of, uh, neighbor, okay. old neighborhood friend's girlfriend from high school. He said, we've known each other for 63 years wow. and we have been making a whole wacky set of biscottis every Christmas. They are really, really good. He said you can use pistachio, dried cranberries instead of almonds if you don't like almonds. And the recipe is very simple. It's like sugar, butter, eggs, um, 
um, different though because it's biscotti, right? So, and then brandy, some anise extract. How do you feel about anise? I don't know what that is. You know, like the licorice flavored stuff. Uh, uh, no, okay. not for you. You don't like the licorice flavor of no. I, a, I don't bake a lot, and B, I don't really like licorice flavor. So, right, so there you go. Why. Not for Nikki. Well, he said you can mix things up on this. So this was a great recipe, Vince. Thank you very much, Nikki. Tell us about one of yours. Mm. Uh, I'm just trying to think of a, a family recipe that we have, and the funny thing is, I can't remember what the name of it is. So, you know, maybe there's a, a, an Eastern European listener, a listener of Eastern European descent, who can call in or, or send us an email and let us know because I'm going to screw this up when I say it on the air. But we call it. Tochel? Does that sound familiar to anyone? It's a potato dish. And I'm sure that that name is slightly wrong from what it actually is. But essentially, it is uh, shredded potatoes. So some of them cooked and some of them raw. You shred all these potatoes. You lay them out onto a baking sheet, like a cookie sheet. You lay them quite flat. You put them in the oven at 500 degrees for half a lifetime they're in there for ages <laughs> and then after about an hour you, you know you, you flip it over so it's, it's quite crispy and quite hard and then you smother it in like a, a chicken gravy or a turkey gravy what? and that was always a traditional it's potato like a, style like dish. a potato pancake and, kind of thing like a potato pancake exactly but you, you know you really see the texture and you get the texture of all that the shredded potatoes in there and we called it Tochel, but I'm not sure what the actual name of it is. So hmm. if we have any listeners of, of Eastern European descent, or maybe it even comes from somewhere else in the world and we just happen to make it, I'm not entirely sure. But I'd be really curious to know what you call it in your family or what it's actually called. I would love to hear about this too, because we got lots of stories like this. Um, Julie, Julie Managas, uh, Julie sent us, she said, every year at Christmas, I make some traditional Scandinavian treats. She said, these oh. recipes have been passed down from my more more. I make spritz cookies in the shape of wreaths, rosettes made with her rosette irons, and crumb cake, like it's K-R-U-M-K-A-K-E, made on her old school crumb cake iron. So she included the spritz and rosette recipes to go uh, along with us. I just, I really want to make these. You know, these are those classic little spritz cookies, Nikki's, that have the little red and green cherries on top. Oh, yes. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Which that reminds me of a recipe here that I received from Carol. And Carol, again, it's it's another sweet, you know, baked good. And there are almond crescent recipes. I love the almond crescents. She said, I hope I'm not too late to enter the contest. You certainly are not, Carol. She said, I had to find my mom's recipe and then type it out, which don't you love those love those handwritten, passed down recipes? And, you know, when you want to give them to someone, you do, you have to type it out word for word. She said, this is a recipe that my mom used to make every single Christmas. She said she'd use, uh, she'd use to start baking in October, but then my dad and my brother would end up eating them all before Christmas <laughs> even came. <laughs> she said, then she smartened up and she began to bake the baked goodies just before Christmas, so there'd always be be something on December 25th. She said, this is one of my favorite recipes that she used to make, almond crescents. I now make them for myself and my friends every single holiday. And they remind me of my mom, who was my best friend Mm. and has now been gone for two years. So the recipe, yeah, really, really sweet. The recipe is one cup of butter or margarine, a third of a cup of white sugar, and then put that cream and the sugar to, or the, the butter and the sugar together. Add uh, one, two thirds of a cup of sifted uh, flour, a, qu- a fourth, one fourth salt. Your ha- I love that you're hand reading. Cause like a lot of these recipes, what people did was they took pictures, right. And sent us their writing. And some of them I have also had trouble like deciphering. 
Totally. Yeah. It's funny because you, you know, you're kind of looking through it and you're, you're reading, especially the measurements. I'm trying to read them cold. I'm like, okay, two thirds of a cup of ground almonds or any type of nut you want. You mix it all together. You chill it. Oh, you roll good. bits of dough into 2.5 inch length, uh, little rolls that are pencil thin. You know, you form those into your crescents and you end up cooking them. Mm. And that sounds like a tasty, tasty treat. It does. Here's one for you. This uh, this is, comes from the unique category, okay? This is from Carly. Carly says, the recipe I am always obliged to make is an old, quote, slice recipe from my grandmother, Eileen Monroe. When I say obliged, she said, I mean that in a good way because it truly is one of my favorite recipes to make for the Christmas season. It's nice and festive, she said, adorned with red and green cherries. There's those cherries again. And prettied up with white mini marshmallows and long thread coconut. And it's a non-bake slice, she said. So so what you do, this one is a very unique one, Nikki. This involves Eagle Brand condensed milk, uh, the green and red maraschino cherries. You, you mix the stuff together, you turn it into a log, and then you roll it in like long thread coconut, and then mm-hmm. you slice it. It's got graham cracker crumbs, condensed milk, oh. green and red maraschino cherries, and marshmallows. This sounds like a trip to the dentist waiting to happen, but <laughs> yeah, right. obviously it's a big treat for a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, brush your teeth before you go before to bed. Before and after. after you've before had those. After. <laughs> right? Again, though, I love that these are recipes that remind people of the holiday season. They remind them of friends and of family and the people who they love to share these these tasty treats with. I think, you know, food is so great at connecting us in that way. And I love that everyone has been sharing their recipes with us. Would you like one savory one just before we uh, go here? Yes. Because oh, I know... Oh, oh, I'm a savory person. Are you? Okay. So this. Oh, yeah. So Leah sent this. Leah said, this is my grandmother's recipe that all of the grown-up grandchildren, and she said 75 plus of us, now use with our own families. It's a staple at Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter. She said, we've had a few people in the family try to add ingredients or change the recipe over the years, it's always resulted in disappointed diners. They call them snow mashed potatoes. Get this, Nikki. Four pounds of potatoes, one package of cream cheese, one cup of sour cream. Uh, let's see. One quarter chop, chop, chop chives and paprika and butter. And then, of course, you mix all of that together. Doesn't that just sound unbelievably decadent right now? I'm going to need you to send me that recipe. Yeah, send me, I'll send you, you that forward one. that to yeah. me. That'd be great. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, many of us will not have the opportunity to spend the holidays with family this year like we normally would, right? That's, that's a difficult situation. But it is still better than the situation many migrant workers are facing right now. Some of them have opted to stay here over the winter because they didn't know what the new year might bring. And others were not allowed to return home due to travel restrictions. So let's talk about the plight that many of those people find themselves in. We're joined now by Byron Cruz, who's the founder of Sanctuary Health, a longtime migrants rights advocate. Byron, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So how many people are we talking about here in BC, Byron, that are kind of faced with this situation? Well, uh, this situation affects a few hundreds of of, uh, migrant workers, 
most of the migrant uh, workers on the seasonal agricultural workers programs are back home right now, but a few hundreds of them stay in the greenhouses. Okay, and what are the conditions like in those houses? Uh, I, I would like to say that it's good, but it's not good. The situation right now that we are facing, especially in the Fraser Valley, is that in this, in this second wave of COVID, COVID is affecting the, the migrant workers as well in the farms. So you're saying they're they're not they're getting sick even staying in the isolation area and all of all of the other things that they've done to try to keep them safe. Uh, what I'm going to say is on the first stage of we were so successful with the decision of the government to keep the quarantine or uh, the isolation at the hotels, but at the moment when they reached the farms, they were okay in the first months. But right now during winter on this second wave of uh, COVID, we already have uh, quite a few workers who are sick and workers who are also very afraid of calling uh, the health authorities because they have been told not to call the health authorities. And then as a result of that, Fraser Health has conducted a few massive testing in in farms. So do you think these people, they're being neglected? They're being overlooked? Oh, definitely. They are in in a neglected uh, situation in a few farms because uh, the guidelines that the federal government established for housing has not been followed up. And then we have situations where eight, ten workers are living in a bedroom and the situation of keeping social distance, uh, that doesn't exist. This, uh, during this uh, season, we had many complaints that were sent to the, to the federal government because the, the housing condition is uh, really bad. That it's definitely one of the factors why they are getting infected right now with COVID. So why are they told or why do they feel like they can't call health authorities? Uh, because uh, they are really afraid. The, sometimes the managers tell them not to call. And then, uh, uh, fortunately, one or two workers call us and they say we are really feeling sick and someone see us. Then what we decided uh well, we decided it was to contact the uh, the BCCDC. BCCDC told us that they were not responsible for the workers out of the uh, of the Vancouver Coastal Health area. Then we follow up with Fraser Health, and Fraser Health has been uh, uh, working with us in following up on some of the cases. But they are afraid because they might lose their jobs. So then they don't say anything, and you're saying that there's groups of them who are still they're getting sick, they're getting COVID nineteen. Uh, yes, the last group that I I got a call was uh, yesterday, and what happened is that usually are their relatives from uh, Mexico, the relatives from Guatemala who call us, and they say, oh, I'm really afraid that my father is getting sick and no one is helping them. Can you please be sure that someone takes care of that? And then what happened is that in most of the times, the, the workers don't have a local uh, number where they can call, and mm-hmm. that's why we are keeping our WhatsApp number active. Okay, so they're still talking about it, they're concerned about it, but they're just not talking to the authorities about it. They are not talking to the authorities and for different reasons. One is that, for example, we have a worker who was feeling very weak, and then he was sent back to Guatemala three, around three weeks ago feeling sick. Uh, and then uh, when he arrived to Guatemala, he was... Uh, he, he was tested positive, and then, uh, and then that's where workers are really 
feeling bad that they are going to be repatriated because they are sick or they are not going to be paid for those uh, days that they uh, are taking isolation. Now, we know how important this was, you know, when because farmers said that they needed help, right? Companies said they needed help. We needed to bring migrant workers in to help them do that. Once they were here then, Byron, are you saying that they haven't been looked after? Uh, in British Columbia, fortunately, during the quarantine time, definitely they have been very well cared at the hotels in Richmond. But when they reach the farms, there are some farmers who have been taking care well of the workers while others don't. And uh, that's really sad to see this situation in the Fraser Valley and Kelowna as well, when uh, be, even being essential workers, they don't have the the opportunity to enjoy any any rights. Now, has the federal government responded to this at all? Uh, so far, uh, the complaints that we sent to the federal government uh, they respond to us that they will follow up. There is an office called Integrity Services mm-hmm. from uh, Service Canada, and they're supposed to follow up. In some situations, the workers uh, tell us, oh, yes, we received the the visit, but when the inspectors visit the farms, usually the the farm puts someone who, who will say some uh, different story, and they hide sometimes the workers not to talk to the, uh, to the inspectors. It, so it still sounds like there's just way too much fear. Oh, definitely, the fear is dominating right now. Yeah. And so, what do you what do you need then? What how can we help the situation? At this at this time, we really would like to uh, to have a coordination between the federal uh, government and the provincial government because there is no coordination between workers' compensation mm-hmm. uh, board and uh, the federal government. No. The workers don't know where to go. The employment standards have not reached the workers. Working uh, WCV has not reached the workers. Then there is no coordination on this. Well, Byron, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Thank you so much for inviting me. That is Byron Cruz. He's the founder of Sanctuary Health, a longtime migrant rights advocate, talking about the situation that many of these migrant workers are finding themselves in right now. And remember how limited that program was this year, right? But some companies had said they really needed migrant workers, so they came in. They're now, you know, Byron points out, they're getting scared. Some of them are sick. They're afraid to tell their employer they're sick. They won't They won't get paid for those days, so they go to work sick. They're living in crowded, more crowded conditions, so they're infecting other people. Like, yeah, that is a problem. Uh, we'll keep you updated on that situation. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about a pretty big announcement the federal government made heading into the weekend. So you may have missed it. They announced a big increase to the federal carbon tax. It's going to go up every year until 2030 and substantially starting in 2022. So what does that mean for you? What does it mean here in BC, where we've already had our own provincial carbon tax, well, for 10 years now? Let's break it all down. UBC political science professor Catherine Harrison studies environment, climate and energy policy and joins us now to help us out with this. Thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure. What did you think about the announcement? I was taken by surprise, actually. Um, I think we've had 30 years of governments in Canada pretending um, that their climate plans will meet targets. And this is the first time we've had a a climate plan that will credibly meet a target on the table. And I'm hoping that that will transform 
the the politics of climate policy in Canada. All right, let's talk about the way this is designed then. Now, from what I understand, Catherine, because I know people are only going to see the amount, right, that the carbon tax is going to go up, but a lot of that is going to come back to people in the form of rebates. Yes. Um, the way the federal carbon tax is designed only applies in a particular province if that province hasn't met um, the federal government benchmark, which has to do with the level of the carbon tax and the coverage. So British Columbia, which had already done uh, a carbon tax and a very good one, has been exempt from the federal carbon tax because we've got our own. So the big difference between the federal carbon tax and British Columbia is is what they do with the revenues. So in the provinces subject to the federal tax, households get all of their money back and they've got it net back in um, as an income tax credit. Thus far, uh, starting next year, they'll get a quarterly check in the mail. Okay, but that's for the provinces that you said that don't have their own. And by the way, we're not talking small checks here, right? We're talking sizable checks. The average family of four in Ontario is thought to collect roughly $2,000 a year in climate rebates by the by the year 2030. So not small checks, you know, either. So what's going to happen then in British Columbia with this? So are we not going to get this increase in the carbon tax? Um, British Columbia will need to increase its carbon tax level um, at the the new federal benchmark, which will go from $50 per ton in 2022 to $170 per ton in 2030. And BC's at $40 now, uh, which is just under $0.09 per litre of gasoline. BC, um, for the first $30 of our carbon tax, gave the money back in a different way And that was by reducing the level of individual income taxes, corporate taxes, and small business taxes. So it's a little less visible, but it's still there. And those lower tax rates were locked in. Above $30 per ton, the the current provincial government has allocated the money in a bunch of different ways. They've increased the low-income credit. They've um, spent a certain amount of money encouraging industry transition. But I do think... If B.C. raises its own tax level rather than having the federal government come in um, as high as, you know, $170 per ton, that there will be pressure to give at least some of that money back to households. Right. This is what I'm thinking, too, because at this point, if you're living in B.C. and you think, well, why I want the rebate, too, if everybody else is getting this rebate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know, I think the federal government has been smart to make its rebate more visible. Some research that I've done with um, colleagues who did public opinion polling over 2019 and 2020 in provinces that were subject to the federal carbon tax. And what we found is people exaggerated how much they were paying in the carbon tax and greatly underestimated how much money they were getting back. Conservatives underestimated by a lot more than liberals did. So the, the federal plan is actually, in those provinces, giving most households con- far above 50% of households, more money back than they're paying. So it's putting money in their pockets, but people don't believe it because that tax credit hasn't been visible. So I think the checks in the mail are a smart smart idea, but that will put pressure on other provinces to do something similar. So then how do you combat that, Catherine? You know, if you and this is going to get a lot of attention, the idea of this being raised so much, but people are obviously differentiating between those two things, the money in their pocket that they're getting versus the rise in the carbon tax. Well, you know, I think it's not just natural 
that people have misunderstood because what we find of big partisan effects in BC in 2008, in Alberta, um, federally in uh, 2008, and again in 2019, we have same, seen the same misleading arguments about carbon taxation made by partisan opponents. They argue it doesn't work, but we know it does, including from a whole host of peer-reviewed studies about BC. Um, they argue that it's unfair. We know that it's actually progressive, the way BCs and the federal carbon tax are designed. They argue they have some other way to do it that won't cost consumers money, but academics who have done the modeling find that's just not true. So I think a lot will turn on how conservatives and opposition parties in other provinces decide to react to this. Are they ready to be truthful with voters or not? Mm -hmm. And if they're putting another plan on the table, as is entirely their right, show us the numbers. Be honest with voters and show them what your plan will accomplish and how the costs are distributed of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Should the federal government be more aggressive then? Like, are people getting this money and really not realizing perhaps what, what it's the result of? Yes, I think that has been true to date. And one of the challenges is that in federal tax provinces, which would be Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, and until recently, New Brunswick, there was a line in their tax return called the climate incentive or something like that. It didn't actually say carbon tax rebate. And only one adult per household gets it, but they get it for the whole family. And our research has found that people just didn't notice it. They didn't right. remember the amount. They didn't know that they were getting it. And so I think one way to combat that is make it more visible. That will also, I would hope, over time, make it more difficult for a later government to take away the carbon tax because in so doing, they will also be taking away those dividend checks that people people are aware of and expect every three months. All right. Catherine, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. You're very welcome. Catherine Harrison is a professor of political science who studies environmental, climate, and energy policy, weighing in on the Trudeau government's announcement that there's going to be some big increases to the federal carbon tax going up every year uh, in more dramatic fashion after 2022, though, right up until 2030. Now, lots of provinces will be getting, people in those provinces will be getting rebate checks. What about BC, though? Because that's not the way our carbon tax works here. The environment minister for the province has released a statement on this, says that we will take the time necessary to review the federal plan, and we look forward to working together with the federal government and other partners to ensure that it aligns with the actions already underway through Clean BC. Does that mean you get a check? Does that mean you're going to get this benefit as well? That's what we have to wait and see. This is Mornings with Simi. We'll talk about a change in tune. There are more Canadians now who say they are not only willing to get the COVID-19 vaccine, but they want to get it as soon as possible. More now than even a month ago. To talk about the latest results of this survey from the Angus Reid Institute, Shachi Curl joins us now. Good morning, Shachi. Good morning, Simi. This is a bit of a surprise, right? Like how quickly that went up in, what, one month? Yeah, so I think the the difference overall, let me just clarify, is not in the number of Canadians who say that they'll get the vaccine full stop. That number hasn't changed. The net number of people who say, I will get a vaccine who, versus I won't, is the same. The big difference is in the number of people who say, 
sign me up immediately. I want to be at the front of the line. I want to roll up my sleeve. And that is a surprise, given that a month ago, you had a significant number of people, nearly nearly a third of Canadians saying, well, I'll get a vaccine, but I don't want to be the first person. I'm going to wait a while. I really, right. I'm worried about, you know, side effects. And for many Canadians, that's still true. That's still the case. But the number who say, hey, I want that thing as soon as it's available to me has jumped significantly. And, you know, what, what do we attribute to that? I don't have an answer. I think it's, it's all those brave seniors in Britain that changed people's minds. You think it's the, the seeing the pictures and seeing the video of the seniors getting the vaccine? You think, hey, listen, if they're getting it, then yes, let's all get it. You know, I, I think it's probably a combination of that plus, you know, human nature being what it is. When you discuss something in the abstract and it feels very unknown, um, mm-hmm. it, you know, people may be a little more hesitant when it's right in front of them, when it's real, when the prime minister and various premiers come out and say, yeah, hey, this thing's rolling out on Monday. Uh, that becomes far more tangible. And, and, you know, as you just pointed out, seeing is believing. If you've got a 91-year-old senior saying, hey, I had this and, and it was okay and I haven't grown a second head, um, that right. is something that, that makes a difference. <laughs> yes, you're right. It's just seeing, you're right. Seeing is believing. Uh, do we have agreement in terms of who we think should get the vaccine first? Yeah, there is a great deal of consensus on that front, without a doubt, um, across age demographics and, and the political spectrum and regions and all the things that sometimes divide us. There's a very strong sense that really, ultimately, those who are, are in greatest need, those who are most vulnerable, should absolutely have it first. So um, the super aged, those, those in long-term care homes, healthcare workers, and then the elderly, and, and from there and from there. Um, so it's, it's really very much uh, a consensus that's based on need. Um, you know, we put a couple of other options in there to see what, what people would react to. Should it be first come, first serve? If you line up, should you get it? No, people didn't agree with that. Should there be a lottery? People didn't really agree with that either. So there is a sense that, hey, um, we're prepared. For many Canadians, I feel like they're prepared to continue to to sacrifice a back-to-normal life a little bit longer uh, in order to protect those who, who are uh, at most risk. Okay, well, that's good to hear. And what is it, like, what do Canadians think, then, of the way the government has approached this whole vaccine situation? Well, interestingly, this is, uh, and I wrote a piece about this uh, across the Post Media Network on, on the weekend about it. It may well be, Simi, uh, Justin Trudeau's last big political win related to the pandemic. And so we've seen this government uh, consi- consistently, the federal government consistently get really strong marks on how it's handled the pandemic. And that also extends to the amount of uh, vaccine that it's been able to procure. Mm-hmm. And generally the sense of, you know, how, how well do you think the government's going to do rolling out this vaccine? Canadians tend to err more on the side of, yeah, we think they'll do okay versus not. Um, and, uh, and if this is what sort of begins the end of, of this very trying year and this very trying period for so many people, uh, it in a way also has the effect of ending uh, some of that political low-hanging fruit for this government the more they have to go back to dealing with uh, the day-to-day issues that, that have really stymied them around pipelines and climate change, 
uh, the West still be seen to be doing well in the eyes of Canadians because those are much more divisive issues than managing a pandemic. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, and what about whether or not vaccination should be mandatory? I know this has been a really interesting discussion. Like, you know, can jobs say the vaccine is going to be mandatory? Well, so you don't have consensus on that issue. There is still uh, a lot of division about it because even even vaccine proponents, even people who say, yes, I believe in vaccines, I believe in science, also uh, take a moment of pause and say, look, um, it's a very personal thing. It's, it's, a, it's a rights thing. It's an individual rights thing. Can we really force people to, to accept a vaccine if, if uh, they're absolutely dead set against it? What I found, however, was really interesting mm-hmm. is there is a subset of Canadians who say they personally won't get a vaccine, but also believe that vaccines should be mandatory for healthcare workers and in schools and really? other places. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's really we've seen that. <laughs> that's really splitting hairs, right? Like, oh, I'm not going to get it, but those people should get it. Yeah, it's like, yeah, precisely. It's like, oh, don't <laughs> don't do as I do. Just do do what I think you should do. Oh I, boy. It's, oh yeah. <laughs> you really do get all the answers, don't you, Shachi? Thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thanks for having me, Simi. That's Shachi Curl, the president of the Angus Reid Institute, with their latest survey out this morning, you know, kind of sussing out how people are feeling about the vaccine now that it is available. And I think she's right. I think seeing the pictures of people already getting the shots, uh, having all that conversation kind of moved forward has changed quite a few people's attitude on this. When you ask people, would you want to be among the first to get it? Like, will you get it as soon as possible? A month ago, about 40% of the people that they had surveyed said, yes, I want it as soon as possible. A month later, 48% now say they want it as soon as possible, up by 8%. And I think it does help to see the enthusiasm for it, you know, the discussion of it, how safe it is and all of that coming out. And people now think, yes, it's made available to me. I want that as soon as possible. And there will be more to come on that issue today as well. The vaccine has arrived in Canada. We are likely to see the first shots administered today. And I know you'll be hearing and seeing it all on the news.